This is Tess. And this is Travis. And you're listening to Disorder in the Court. So this week, um, I'm going to be covering a case called Hawkins vs. McGee. Does that like ring any bells to you? It, it does not. Yeah, I, for, I think that's the way for most people, even those who, who have studied law. Um, the case is more commonly referred to as the Harry Hand case. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, it's one we hear like... In multiple classes, 1L year, they teach a lot of different things about it. Is it multiple classes? Yeah. Con- it touches contracts. It touches torts in a way. There's a lot of like oh, causation and warranty I I different things. in torts. Yeah. Okay, cool. But we'll get to all the issues and stuff that, are, that go into it. Um, it's a strange case. Maybe mm-hmm. not necessarily as crazy as a few of the other ones that we've done or will do, but still, I think pretty interesting. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Not going to lie. I'm excited about it. That's good. Um, So for mine, I am going to dabble a little bit into the true crime area. Mm -hmm. Promise, not a true crime podcast. Um, But I do love true crime. And like months ago, I had heard an episode of a true crime podcast, Generation Y, that had covered this case. Okay. Yeah, I've listened Um, to that too. Yeah. (laughs) And I think like so many other true crime podcasts have covered it too. But it is super involved in the court. It's got a lot going on in the court. um, So I want to cover it from that angle. Cool. That sounds great. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'll get started. In today's case, I am going to give you a real twisty turny case. So get excited. What an intro. Yeah. Um, So the story starts with a young woman named Ellie. Um, She has been married and divorced and she meets uh bill nestler and he was a gold miner and a crop duster did this case take place in like the 1840s no literally i wish i was kidding it took place in like the 1970s through 90s gold miner yeah crop duster i can see like yeah that's always a thing agriculture needs that yeah gold miner yeah so this So we're in Northern California, and this part, I guess, has, like, a lot of coal mines, and it's, like, old gold rush. But still, there was not a gold rush in the U.S. in the The 70s. 70s, 1970s. Yeah, not even a little bit. So they have their first child named Will or Willie. Naturally, not a great time for gold mining in the U.S., but a great time for gold mining in Liberia. So they move the whole family to Liberia so that Bill can mine for gold. Um, Then they have their second child, which is a girl. And then a civil war broke out in Liberia. Oh, my goodness. So basically, Ellie took the two kids and they moved back to Northern California. And her husband stayed behind in Liberia to mine gold. Okay. And then literally no one ever talks about him again. Like, she keeps his last name. I'm pretty sure they don't get divorced, but I have no idea if he ever came back, if he ever sent money. Like, literally no idea. Like, this man could still be alive in Liberia. Like, I have no idea. I gotta be honest with you. I I haven't heard this case before now. This is the first time I'm hearing it. I 100% thought it was gonna be about him. No. So, for you to say that he's just gone for good is blowing my mind. No, he's just gone for good. Like, literally forget him. All right. But yeah, so she comes back and she's in California. The LA Times, very clearly reported on this, says that she got by on welfare and by chopping wood. I guess she's if you can be badass. a gold miner, you could probably chop, chop wood, wood for yeah. a living. Well, I mean, she wasn't the gold miner. He was. No, I know, but they're both viable occupations at the yes. time, so. Fair. Yeah, so chopping wood. 
Um, after moving back, she became like a regular churchgoer and was just taking care of her kids, chopping wood, going to church, basically. Um, and things were going well. She had like her son, which was um, like young. He was like seven-ish. And then her daughter was even younger than that. And then one day, Will, the seven-year-old, he asked if he could go to a sleepaway church camp. So it was like sponsored or hosted or related to the church that they went to. But Ellie was like, um, you're seven. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that's a great idea. So I really don't want you going. And so she said no. And then what convinced her to let him go, though, was a family friend named Daniel Driver. And he also went to this church and they became good friends. And he was like, hey, I'm going to be at this camp. I'm volunteering as a dishwasher. So I'll keep an eye on him while he's at camp. And um, it will be fine. You're looking so suspicious right now. That seems very suspicious. It is very suspicious. You're correct. Um, But Ellie didn't see it as suspicious. She was like, yeah, you know what? This makes sense. Like, you can keep an eye on him. He'll be so happy to go to this sleepaway camp. Like, I'll send him. But when... And he goes to camp. Nothing really happens, like, while he's at camp. When he comes back, he is a completely different person. A completely different little boy. Like... His aunt said that he changed from, like, a very beautiful little kid into a mean little brat who was spiteful and angry, and he had to change schools a bunch of times. Can I can I ask you, how yeah. long did, was the church camp? A camp? Okay. I think in a podcast I listened to about this, it could have been Generation Y, it could have been Let's Go to Court, like... Mm-hmm. They said that it was, like, maybe a couple weeks or, like, a what? week, but it wasn't... And one article said a fortnight. I don't know what that is. Two weeks. Two weeks is a fortnight. So it must have been two weeks. Okay. Okay. I had no idea what a fortnight was. Oh, now you know. (laughs) Okay, so two weeks. It's a popular game that teenagers like to play. Yeah, I'm familiar in that area. Wrong one. Apologize. Um, So, yeah. So two weeks this was then. Okay. Um, So not a long time, but not a short time either. And basically, she couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, and so she didn't know what to do. So she confided in Daniel Driver and, um, he became like a regular guest at the home, like hanging out with Will, teaching him about the Bible, doing Bible studies Mm -hmm. with him and other kids. Um, and she was basically like, I can't like figure it out and nothing seemed to be helping. But Daniel was like doing his best and so was Ellie. Um, and then about a year later, uh, Will was at a sleepover at his aunt's house And he told his aunt that Daniel Driver had molested him while he was at camp. Yeah. Okay. Um, And he also told her that Daniel had said he would kill his entire family if he told anyone. And so, of course, he was terrified, didn't tell anyone. And that kind of explains all of the behavior changes that happened right after he got home from camp. Completely reasonable. So, his aunt was, like, a really good woman, I think, and so was his mom in how they handled this. Um, His aunt basically told him, you know, I think we should tell your mom, like, he can't hurt you. Like, we're going to protect you. We should tell your mom. Mm -hmm. And so, they told Ellie, and Ellie was like, you don't need to feel guilty about this. You don't need to feel bad about this. Like, this happened to me when I was younger. Like, we're going to do something about it. He's not going to hurt you. Like, we're going to report him. Okay. So, she reports him to the police, and um, they actually had already started an investigation into him, 
um, because around the same time, a woman that Daniel Driver was dating had walked in on him touching one of her sons inappropriately. So this is like a serial thing going on. Someone who's got a, yeah. a habit and a track record of yeah. doing this. Okay. So um, that that mom had a district attorney friend, and she reported it to him, and he kind of got the ball rolling on this. Um, so all in all, he'll eventually end up being charged with molesting four boys. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. The police started to look into him and looked into the case, and uh, it turns out that he had pleaded or was convicted of felony child molestation in another county in California, Mm -hmm. but he was given probation, and they found him unlikely to re-offend, so he just, like... Basically, they were like, this is fine. The articles kind of differ in what they report on, but I think the consensus is that there are actually two separate times where he was arrested and found guilty or pled guilty to child molestation and then was just let go with, like, basically no punishment yeah, and no, no restrictions. And I yeah. don't think that's something that people may realize about about the discretion of the court. Oh, yeah. In sentencing... Whoever's in charge, a judge or whoever else is appointed at that at that particular place, can exercise discretion and decide what to sentence you to. For sure. Based on a, based on myriad factors. And that'll come up later in this case too. Um, it's just it's interesting because I think this case really calls into question like a lot of like when and if at all the justice system is actually serving justice. Right. And I think that this is, like, the first example in this case is just, like, they're like how, how do you determine that they're unlikely to reoffend? That doesn't quite make sense to me. The calculus on that is questionable to begin with. Yeah. Add into the fact that it may have happened twice before right. it even got to the serial, you know, rampage or whatever yeah. later on. And it's, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. That seems like a major oversight. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. Here we are. Sure. Um, so the police doing their jobs. They issue a warrant for his arrest. But he's gone. They can't find him. Oh, like he... He He fled. Okay. He is gone. They just can't do anything for like two whole years. Nothing happens in this case. Yeah. And then they finally get him because he gets picked up for shoplifting in a different county in Mm -hmm. California. So they extradite him back to this county so he can be arrested um, and tried on these molestation charges. So that case proceeds. Um, It's now at least three years after Will has actually been molested because he waited a year to disclose to anyone. And then this guy left. So it's been a long time. Mm -hmm. But they do finally arrest. But in the case, the DAs kind of make clear to Will and Ellie that if they want to get a conviction against Daniel Driver, they're going to need to testify against him both ellie and will yikes okay right so just as you're thinking this is super upsetting to will he's like 11 at this time Mm -hmm. he still probably thinks that daniel driver is going to kill his family i mean that that threat is what kept him from reporting right away anyway exactly so he has to be just like completely terrorized by all of this Mm -hmm. i can, can not even imagine um, he has like a lot of physical anxiety symptoms, most notably that he cannot stop vomiting, like that Yikes. he's just vomiting constantly, vomiting bile and like all of this leading up to when he has to testify. Again, 
I can't find exactly a clear answer on this, but I'm almost positive that at this is a pre-trial hearing. It's not his trial. Okay. Um, but it's going to be some sort of evidentiary hearing. But at this hearing, just like at a trial, Will and Ellie are going to be called to testify. Mm-hmm. Um, and Will has been throwing up all day. Like, he's sitting in the courthouse with a bag, like, throwing up. Like, he's so anxious and, like, terrorized that he can't do anything else, basically. But the DAs are still saying, like, you have to testify against this guy or... Mm-hmm. There's nothing we can do. He's going to walk for this. So um, not a great situation and kind of points out, at least to me, one of the issues with the justice system. And it's important, so important that people who are accused have the right to confront their accuser. Yeah. So that makes sense why Will has to testify. But it's really hard to come down on that side of that issue when... It's a man abusing his power over an 11-year-old. A a child. A child who has to testify against him in order to get him convicted for this. Yeah, and I think it sort of begs the question in a way, um, at what point does that right to confront Mm -hmm. your abuser, I guess in this scenario, become more of a detriment than it does a benefit? Yeah. It's one thing to be able to choose to do that, yeah. To completely other another thing to, be to have to do that in order yeah. for them to see any justice at all. And, and obviously that depends case to case, facts to facts. If the only evidence they had was this kid's testimony, then right. I mean, you don't have a choice. If you right. want to see evidence, you have to do that. But it still puts everyone, I think, yeah. in a really awkward and unenviable position. And it's hard too because I compare it, like found myself comparing it a lot with when the satanic panic was going around and there was a lot of allegations um, where children were being led to testify about yeah. satanic and sexual abuse mm-hmm. against adults that literally had never even it heard of happen. this in their life yeah. and it just didn't happen. And we know that now as compared with this case where like, I mean, we're fairly certain that it did happen. I guess it's technically alleged, but mm-hmm. we're fairly certain it did happen and it's traumatizing this kid, but he still has to do it. And it's yeah. just, Yeah. It's a hard time. So anyways, Ellie is super concerned about her kid, obviously. Like, he's already been through so much, and um, she doesn't want him to have to go through anything else. In the courtroom, before they testify, she sees Daniel Driver, who is said to have been smirking at her son, who is literally throwing up bile into a bag in the courtroom, and she's not pleased. Um, Then they go on a recess, and she hears... In the hallway, one of the other mothers talking um, that she thinks Driver is going to get off because the proceedings are not going well. Um, And basically, like, that the kids are giving weak testimony because they're scared of Driver. So that it's not going to work out in their favor. So during the recess, she, at some point, gets a pistol from the purse of her. Oh. Yeah. This is where that's, we're going. Yeah, it's going to yeah. go left real quick. So she gets a pistol from the purse of one of her sisters, who's also there at the trial. Um, and as she's led back into the courtroom after the recess, she empties the pistol into Daniel Driver. She only misses once, so he sh- he's shot five times in the head and kills him right there. Yeah. So ha- I guess you said this was 
what the 80s and 90s this so case? this is in the court proceedings are in the 90s 93 i think so the question for me at least is mm-hmm. how did someone manage to get a fully loaded handgun into the courthouse and then not have enough oversight over it to lose it to someone who's very clearly emotionally distraught and has a huge stake in the outcome of this case so i from what i've read this is actually kind of the turning point of security in courthouses um so we both know now when you enter a courthouse you go through security like you go through a metal detector if you beep the metal detector they wand you down you have to put all your belongings in a bin and have that go through an x-ray the county courthouse here yeah. in, in the, the town that we live in, it's it's yeah. on its own is an incredible amount of security. I can only imagine what it's like at a higher level court. Yeah. That's, I mean. Literally, so, like, I have worked in courthouses, like, very frequently for many summers and semesters. And even as an intern, like, I could not get clearance to go into the courthouse without going through security. Yeah. So, like, literally every time I'm, like, bringing my lunch back in like to the courthouse and I have to put it to go through and they're like you're not allowed to bring food in here and I'm like okay but I work here and I need to eat lunch what am I supposed to yeah. do then like right. that is the level of security in courthouses now if you are not familiar um but apparently then that was not the case and in this scenario actually the bailiff had retired and they hadn't like made it a priority to hire a new one so, so there's actually no bailiff. bailiff yeah so it was just kind of like a bunch of different things all kind of converged and then i think this is really the turning point for security in a lot of courthouses because they realize that someone could just bring a gun in i mean i would certainly hope so aside from all of the actual like judicial discretion issues in this case mm-hmm. there are security issues all yes. over the place for right? sure like at almost at every turn the abuser sees the accuser yeah before the evidentiary proceeding or whatever and, like, this is during takes place. It too. during it they're confronted yeah. with one another you'd think that they would try to i don't know mitigate the the emotional harm for this child as best yeah. they could the gun no bailiff it's yeah. it's like they were just they didn't even have a courthouse they, i know they were just a judge sitting on a park bench basically and it makes it seem like a lot farther in the past than it actually is too like this was in 1993 like you were born yeah so year of my birth yeah so it's yeah it's wild and here i thought the person who was a gold miner in the 70s was going to be the most outdated part of the story yeah turns out no not at all it is it's really a wild story and so of course everyone at the time thinks this is wild too um ellie is obviously immediately arrested um, and she's charged with the murder of Daniel Driver. She did murder him. Yeah, <laughs> she really did. When she's interviewed by the police, she states that uh, he deserved to die. And she says this weird quote that kind of comes back to like bite her a little bit later. Um, she says, maybe I'm not God, but I'll tell you what, I'm the closest damn thing to it for all the other little boys. So uh. to me, it's screaming like, if he gets off, he's going to do this again, and I'm not people. letting him do this. Yeah, and yeah, I guess you can sort of see it from her perspective. Yeah, I mean, she's like, her son's traumatized. Like, she's been through this trauma and not gotten justice for her abuser, or for herself from her abuser. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, you can't justify murder. No. It's not okay. No. Um, 
at the same time, you got to wonder at what point does trusting that system that's failed her so many times, does that become just, like obsolete? Yeah. Just wasted effort. And I think that's kind of what happened. Like it, another quote of her, she says, my little boy can hold his head up now. He doesn't have to be afraid of Danny. And I think that kind of speaks to that element. She's just like, they are not going to protect him. So I have to. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, the response from the community though was really positive. They kind of rallied behind her, um, and like supported her. They raised money for her bail. They made like bumper stickers, like joking about it. And yikes. Yeah. It, the, Bumper stickers are a little cringy. One of them, I think some of them said, like, good shot, Ellie, or something like that. Like, uh, I, it was a little bit wild. But, I mean, raising money for her bail, though, I think was g- pretty good. Like Bail is an entirely different I, oh my God. subject. We got to talk hope, about bail sometime. I hope we talk about yeah. it. So, yeah, the which the people rallying around her makes sense. Because even though it is murder and objectively, I can say, like, that's bad and you shouldn't have done that. Um, it's hard to feel sorry for a convicted child molester. Like, he wasn't convicted in this case, but he's a child molester. He's pled guilty twice that we yes. know of. Yeah. So, um, it was released that Ellie had been high on methamphetamine when she shot him. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And that basically got rid of all of the community support. Why? I don't know. Like, that's wild to me. And that's what... <laughs> it's so crazy to me. Like, it, they're okay with her snapping and killing this man because of what she's going through mm-hmm. but if she's on meth because of what she's going through like because just to stay up with her vomiting son and like deal with the stress of this that's not okay but it, very strange to it me. also to me doesn't her being on drugs in any capacity mm-hmm. unless she was in some kind of like uncontrollable episode mm-hmm. doesn't take away why she did it i know so if you had supported her for the why before which it was problematic in and of itself. Right. But if you had supported her for the why beforehand, how does being on any kind of drugs take that away? I wish I knew. I really didn't understand. It's strange to me seeing the lines at which people draw yep. their support yep. in this case. Don't like child molesters. Totally understandable. Yep. Fine with murder. A little bit mm, more problematic. <laughs> yeah. Not fine with someone doing meth. Which is a also weird strange. hill to die on. I don't. Like out of all of that. It's very weird. But it is what it is, I guess. So, obviously, this means Daniel's trial is over. Like, there's no point now. Um, He is gone. Like I said, Ellie is arrested for his uh, death and charged with murder. Um, And in this time, she also, unfortunately, finds out that she has cancer. And she does not have a long time to live even with treatment. Um, So, she goes to trial for his murder. The prosecution is arguing for first-degree murder, which in California means that it's premeditated murder. Like, you don't have to think about it for a long time, but you have to think about it beforehand that you're killing someone. It can't be a reaction. Yeah. Or just, like, like at, at the flip of a switch. Right. It's got to be, even if it's a minute, even if it's 30 seconds. Yeah. If there's some type of thought beforehand. That you're going to kill this that person. That you're going to kill someone, and then you do. Yeah. Premeditated murder. Yes. And, um... So then there's something I want to talk about while we're talking about this, which is lesser included charges, which is the easiest way to explain it is the prosecution will try and prove the highest level of crime that they can. So in this case, first degree murder, they have to prove the intention. They have to prove the premeditation. They have to prove all of these elements beyond a reasonable doubt. But basically what they're saying by including lesser um, 
charges is, hey, like, if you don't find all of what we need to prove for first-degree murder, maybe we still proved all of the elements for these lesser-included charges. Okay. So in this case, that would be something like second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter, which is what the judge actually included in this case. All right. Second-degree murder in California is a willful murder, but it's not premeditated. So, like, you don't have that instant where you think, like, I'm going to kill this person. So that that might be the reaction or something like that. Yeah. And then voluntary manslaughter is uh, you did kill that person, but it was in the heat of passion or in a quarrel, which is not my words. But heat of passion is an interesting one um, because it's kind of what happened here. And we'll see what actually happens in this case. The common application of heat of passion is when a man walks in or woman, I guess, walks in on their spouse and their spouse's lover and kills them okay not a great example but that's the one that usually comes i mean up. That, that's how we learned it yeah when we were in class i think that's yeah. the easiest for people to latch on to yeah um but here both the prosecution and the defense did not want lesser included charges interesting which is wild they both wanted all or nothing first degree murder or nothing hmm. i don't know why <laughs> Um, so neither of them wanted it. The defense wanted to argue insanity and have insanity be a complete defense, meaning gets her completely off. Right. Um, I don't know what the prosecution was thinking here. Maybe just that they had a good case and they just wanted the jury to only consider and not do like a cop out because they felt bad for her. So. Yeah. I don't know. Even still, that seems. Yeah. Like I know. A poor legal strategy. Right. But so the judge was basically like, no, I'm including them. Like, they're lesser included charges and they're applicable here and the jury's going to consider them. So he includes them. Basically, the prosecution's argument was that sympathy can't overpower reason in this case. Like, this is a calculated killing. She went and got the gun and that her statements on why she did it and, like, what the exact like facts were were inconsistent. And so, especially the quote about her playing God... Right. This is first-degree murder. Yeah. That's what they're arguing. The defense argues, though, as they should, that Driver was akin to Jack the Ripper, and he was a bad guy. And the only reason that this happened was because him and Ellie collided for an evil second. Like, just that one instant where he smirked, and she was just like... Done. Done. Right. Yeah. So, I think... Do you want to guess what the jury found in this case? I'm going to guess based on how they've treated this this poor woman the entire time, mm-hmm. that she was found guilty of first-degree murder. No, actually. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, this is a good twist. Um, they found her guilty of voluntary manslaughter. So the, the lower of the three charges yes. that we mentioned. Yes, okay. the lowest. Um, which, to me at least, makes sense here. Yeah. Like I said before, it's a heat of passion sort of thing, like, and she's just caught up in, like, the emotion of what's going on and just snapped. I think maybe what the defense was hoping for and what the prosecution was trying to avoid with lesser included mm-hmm. defenses is jury nullification, where basically okay. the jury doesn't say so. They just find them not guilty, but basically so the jury decides that we don't agree with the application of the law in this case, so we're finding them not guilty. Oh. And I wanted to talk about that for a second because even though I think that 
voluntary manslaughter heat of passion gets it right i think if i was on the jury and i was like hearing all this firsthand i might have been pulled to do that and just be like no like she that she's been through enough yeah i mean i guess but at the end of the day she did kill a person she did kill a person and it's really it's harder to and i think that's why I'm glad the judge included voluntary manslaughter mm-hmm. because I really think that fits. First degree murder in this case would not have been okay. Right. That is not applicable to these facts. Uh, well, I can see why they're arguing it. She went and got the gun. Sure. I mean, I guess um, it's tough because of the way that the premeditation yeah. thing works. Like like we said, if it's a 30 seconds, if it's 15 seconds of premeditation, it counts as premeditated murder. Yeah. I don't know what the requirements in California are, but- if it was like taking a step towards committing the crime, if that counts as premeditation, mm-hmm. then you have first degree murder. Yeah. If it's just the thought process as it happens or right before it happens, right. it's not. So. I mean, we'd have to dive, I don't know. dive into some case law that I did not feel like researching. That's okay. So. I'm not going to. <laughs> um, so we'll leave it up to everyone to decide for themselves what yeah. they feel here. So she was sentenced to 10 years in prison for voluntary manslaughter. Uh, she did appeal, though, and the court agreed with her and said that her conviction should be overturned because of juror misconduct. And so I couldn't find the exact grounds of why, like, the juror misconduct, like, what happened to make it juror misconduct. But all along in this case, her attorneys were basically arguing that she was too notorious in this county and everyone knew about her. So she wouldn't get a fair trial because there'd be no unbiased jurors that hadn't formed an opinion yet. Especially since she had such a community like outpouring, even if it was for or against her, like it's still biased. Yeah. And for those that don't know, when you are selected for a jury, you need to basically swear that you are unaware of the facts of the case or the people in the case and you haven't formed an opinion beforehand so mm-hmm. you're not a biased juror. If right. you aren't, then you can't serve as an unbiased juror. I mean, it's right. as simple as that. And usually they will try and exclude people who know anything about the case. But if they can't do that, then they'll basically ask you from the information that you know, have you formed an opinion already? And if you formed an opinion already, you cannot serve. So basically they're arguing that they will not be able to find enough people that have not formed an opinion. So I assume that it's related to that. I assume there was evidence that one of the jurors knew too much about the case um, and they weren't unbiased and that's why it was overturned. But I don't know for sure. I just know it was juror misconduct. Instead of a retrial, which she was entitled to because her conviction got overturned by the appeals court, she accepted a plea deal with the prosecution um, where she pled guilty to manslaughter. So, same thing again, but pled guilty to it instead of a trial. And she would serve three years. Interesting that during the retrial or before the retrial, mm-hmm. the prosecution changed their minds about lesser charges. Here's the thing. This happens kind of a lot, I think, when convictions get overturned. The prosecution will then seek to make a deal. And I think it... it my idea of it is because they've been through the trial once they kind of know how it's going to come out now they aren't they don't have new evidence usually like especially if it's juror misconduct there's no smoking gun that's going to be offered now and change the outcome of the trial so i'm assuming the prosecution is like we could go through this whole trial and end up with a voluntary manslaughter charge again anyways or we could save ourselves the time and offer her a plea deal for that charge anyways and then it's like a net zero outcome basically yeah prevents you from 
doing an entire retrial for something that you already know is going to happen. Right. One way or the other. Right. And Got we it. could talk about about plea deals for a long time too, but basically, I mean, plea deals keep the case burden out of the system. Sure. There's like an absurd amount of You don't have to go through cases. all the trying and yeah. everything. You don't have to go through trial. Victims don't have to testify. Like, you just give them save a plea money, deal. Save money, save time, yeah. save people's, you know, yeah. efforts. So I think this happens a lot, especially when they've had one trial. You'll hear in a lot of cases where there's huge prosecutorial misconduct is when they know that something bad happened or they withheld evidence yeah. or something like that. And then they're like, no, I'm right and I'm going to try them again. Stick Never it out as best well. I can. Right. Yeah. So I think that the prosecutors in this case realized, like, what was going to happen again and what the smart move was. Sure. So she serves three years and she gets out. Um, I also think they might have taken into account her breast cancer diagnosis and sentencing her or giving her a deal for three it's years. certainly possible, yeah. yeah. So she gets out after her three years. But sadly, that is not the end of the Nestlers in court. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, I told you there were going to be lots of twists and turns. Mm-hmm. So we heard that Ellie had uh, been using methamphetamine when she shot Daniel Driver, and she basically battled a methamphetamine addiction for the rest of her life. Um, eventually, she was sentenced to six years in prison after pleading guilty to selling and possessing methamphetamine, which should tell you something about drug laws, which is why I was like, that's another episode yeah. <laughs> about drug laws. You hate to see anybody in this position where they have to go through their child being injured and abused. Mm -hmm. They have their own legal battles, obviously chased by demons in some capacity and just couldn't kick it. I mean, that's, it's sad. It's It's really disappointing. It's really sad. And she also, I mean, I guess I can't say she recently died, but um, she lived long past her life expectancy when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and I think she died in, I forget, but I think it was 2008 and died of the breast cancer that she had been battling. Yikes. Well, yeah, that's unfortunate. That's also not the end of their legal troubles, though. After she died? Yeah. Okay. Her son, Will, oh, gosh. who had been abused, he his whole adolescence and young adulthood, he was in and out of jail um, and like reform camps and boot camps. Um, for various robberies and drug offenses. He was arrested for an assault on a man who was hired to clean the family's property and who accused Will of stealing tools. And so he assaulted that man. He went to jail. Uh, He was released after 60 days for good conduct. And then less than an hour later, he um, went and stomped that man to death. Holy crap. So he is now serving 25 years to life for first degree murder. I don't I don't really know what to say. I mean, yeah. I feel bad for the child will because yeah. he went through something traumatic and then unfortunately never even got to see yeah. justice. You know, after his mom killed his abuser, couldn't even say that the guy was found guilty or something yeah. like that. Well, and he and he grew up without his mom, too. I mean, for at least for a significant period of his life. Yeah. I mean, that's it's disappointing. And you can sort of, from all of this, see the domino effect yeah. of, of poor legal decisions or, you know, incidents that happen with abuse and things like that. Yeah. It spirals. 
it disrupts a whole family yeah. when someone in the family goes to it's jail. It's got ripples. And so that's why I'm going first again because that is a huge bummer ending. Yeah, it's a bummer. And, uh, you know, you hate to end on something like that. But the sad fact of the matter is that that's, that's the case in the legal system and a large majority of it, I would say. So it's sad, but it's unfortunately realistic. Yeah, truly. Okay, so I'm going to go now, hopefully uh, lift us up a little bit from that bummer of a case, I guess. Please do. I will do my absolute best. So, as I said, I'm talking about Hawkins v. McGee, otherwise known as the Hairy Hand case. Which is a much better name than Hawkins v. McGee. 100%. Hawkins v. McGee is like the most generic case name. It's like if you were to fill out like a legal PowerPoint or something and you used a template... Oh, Hawkins you mean v. like McG- literally when I created a blue booking PowerPoint? <laughs> exactly right. They, Hawkins yeah. v. McGee would be like the placeholder for yeah. that. Like it wouldn't even be a real thing. Yeah. Bear with me on this one mm-hmm. because the reason for its name is not going to be apparent right away. Oh, yeah. I think that a lot of people are expecting like some kind of like gorilla case or something. Yeah, no. Um, It's not that. But when the when the reveal hits... It's going to be cool. It's going to be exciting. I'm Trust me. I'm sad that I already know the reveal. That's okay. Um, this is but a... for everyone else, it's going to be lit. Sure. This is a 1929 case that was heard in the Supreme Court of New Hampshire. In the last episode of us doing this, mm-hmm. I said Supreme Court a lot. Mm-hmm. And even though that was technically true, it was the Supreme Court of Texas. Yes. So if I say Supreme Court at any given point, know that this takes place in New Hampshire, not at the federal level. Realize in this case, it is the highest court of New Hampshire. Right. And if I say Supreme Court, I still mean the highest court of New Hampshire. Okay? Yep. On board. So, George Hawkins, the plaintiff in this case, when he was, I think I read he was about nine years old, he had an accident with a live electrical wire, and it caused, like, a really bad burning on one of his hands, Mm -hmm. so bad that he had, like, very bad skin damage. It caused a lot of like deep cuts and burns, which eventually resulted in um, he has a left hand that is almost entirely made up of scar tissue. Okay. Which in itself doesn't necessarily seem like a problem, right? Like people yeah. have scars. When it's when there's so much of it, and I had to go look this up because I wasn't exactly sure what the issue was. When there's so much of it, it tends to constrict your movements a little bit. Right, because it's like really thick and like. Well, it's really thick. It's got less uh, nerve endings attached to it. Yeah. So you can't, ha- you don't have as much feeling in it. Yeah. It tends to tighten and restrict the actual mobility of the hand and its use. Mm-hmm. Um, effectively, his hand wasn't completely disabled, but it was. It was becoming an issue in terms of movement and use. Right. So a bunch of years later, when he was a teenager, I think um, maybe nine years later, so just before he was eighteen. Right. He went and sought reconstructive surgery mm-hmm. from one Dr. Edward McGee. Uh-oh. That McGee. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, That's exactly. a defendant. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to get rid of the scar tissue and have at least somewhat regained mobility in his hand and use of it. Mm-hmm. Where it starts to get interesting is that before the surgery, McGee gave the boy's father, who was obviously the age majority, he was the person that the doctor was dealing with at the time, gave him two promises. And I have direct quotes of these promises. Um, Did they refer to them as promises? Promises and warranties interchangeably. 
but they dis- they discussed what that means for the legal concept of it later on, and we'll okay. get to that. And the first thing that happened was uh, Hawkins' father asked about the length of his son's stay, the quality of the surgery, how long it would take him to recover, that kind of thing. And the doctor said, quote, three or four days, not over four. Then the boy can go home and it will be just a few days when he will go back to work with a good hand. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell that this was written in 1929, but I, I can. it was like reading in a different language at times. Yes. Like the syntax and the grammar is all over the place. I do not miss that part of law school. No. Trying to decipher a case from like 1840. Honestly, I've read Peerless. cases from 1840 that are that Better more than comprehensible this than this. Ugh. Wait, who wrote this opinion? I don't know. I feel like it was someone famous, but maybe I'm thinking. I can look it up and include it at the end. Now you know what I'm thinking of. Learned Learned in hand. hand, Yeah. God. Learned in hand. A justice, not a case. Yeah, okay. The second promise that the doctor gave, unprompted, by the way, Mm -hmm. didn't need to do this. Took it upon himself to say this. That'll get you in trouble. Big time. He said... I will guarantee to make the hand a hundred percent perfect hand or a hundred percent good hand. Okay. Verbatim. First of all, yeah. If you're saying anything to anybody, unless it's like a close friend or you're saying it as a joke, don't guarantee anything. Yeah. If you're a doctor doing a surgery, don't guarantee anything. Yeah. This is not legal advice. This is common sense advice. Yeah. This is your not guarantee anything this is everyday advice <laughs> please don't the fact that the doctor was guaranteeing a 100 percent perfect hand is it's itself nuts what's weirder is that he also guaranteed a 100 percent good hand yeah and i don't know if that was meant to be different than a perfect hand or if it was in addition to a perfect hand or who knows i don't know what's going on i but, was gonna say earlier i hope he's okay with guaranteeing a good hand but now he's also guaranteed a perfect hand both of them so it it leads to two issues in the case okay um i'm going to talk about one which actually leads into the second one all right so the first issue is were those promises that the doctor gave did that constitute a contractual guarantee Mm -hmm. which is different than a normal guarantee right because once you guarantee once you enter into a contract you're obligated to perform that contract right as best you can or as best as the circumstances will allow, right? The case refers to this as a warranty, and that's sort of interchangeable with a few caveats here and there, but understand that a contractual guarantee is a warranty, is a guarantee, is a promise for the sake of this case. So the court and this examines the actual content of the promises first. Um, The former, the one about the length of the stay, Mm -hmm. right? The court said that you could potentially see a discussion about the length of the stay as sort of a medical evaluation. Right. As as a best guess by the doctor that didn't necessarily guarantee anything. Right. It wasn't very specific either. Well, I mean, it was specific in that he gave numbers, but it wasn't like he wasn't, he'll be here for three days. Right. And he certainly didn't say, I guarantee that this will happen. Right. He also went back and forth at the amount of time, three or four days, not over four. He said it'll be a few days before full recovery once mm-hmm. he returns home. There's a a lack of specificity there. And more importantly, doctors are allowed to sort of estimate based Mm -hmm. on their reasonable belief of what's going on. And for contracts even too, it's important in your contract that you're specific about what the terms are. And if the terms are not specific and they can't be interpreted by just using what you've said or written, 
you don't have a contract for those terms. Yeah, and I think that's the turning point for the second promise here. Mm-hmm. Because the second promise was very specific right. in its terms. Right. It said, I guarantee that after my surgery, more or less, you will have a 100% perfect hand. Mm-hmm. And the court said, that's a promise. Yeah. Specific, clear, parent and the child are both going to rely on that statement. You, yeah. You've backed yourself into a contractual corner here, effectively. McGee, the surgeon, argued that, for some reason, argued that there was no way a reasonable person would take the latter promise, the promise about that 100% guaranteed good hand, to be true, because, in his mind, it was, quote, an expression in strong language that he believed and expected that, as a result of the operation, he would give the plaintiff a very good hand. I have no idea what that actually means in in normal, modern-day English. What? But the way the court interpreted that was the same argument that he made for the first promise, that it was a medical estimation or he was doing his best in his capacity as a doctor to uh, predict what was happening rather than guarantee what would happen. I'm glad I had the court to interpret that because I have that was Lord, I would have not guessed that that was the lawyer's argument after passing through McGee's reasoning. So, like, that was normal and acceptable in this case. Mm. Don't get me started. I had to... This is one of the shortest cases I've read. It was only <laughs> six pages total or something like yep. that. It took me significantly longer than it should have. Oh, yeah. Um, the court took that second statement as a contractually obligating promise, as I said. They sort of refused to get go into the probability of whether or not a surgeon would reasonably guarantee 100% certainty because that implicates a lot of different issues about the quality of the surgeon, whether or not it's reasonable to be 100% sure or if it'll be 100% perfect. Is 99% enough? Is 50% enough? It doesn't matter. They decided not to go into it. They said mm-hmm. that there was enough specificity that reliance on it would would violate a contract effectively. That's all well and good. But I think the question in the court's mind and maybe someone reading or listening to this mind is, even if that was a contractual promise, even if the doctor was obligated to perform that promise. What do you recover in a case like this? Yeah. Like, what's the issue? He got surgery on his hand, right? Is there a is there a measure of damage? Can you put a value on a hand? Well, and right now, what went wrong? What went wrong? Well, here's the reveal. <laughs> um, as I said before, the, he was a kid when he first sustained the accident, mm-hmm. but he was a teenager, a late teenager, when he got his surgery. And from the information that I have available to me, apparently he had un- he had gone through puberty at this point and he was a considerably hairy young man. Mm-hmm. The doctor, in grafting skin onto the hand, decided to uh, transplant a sample from the boy's chest. Okay. Again, not that big a deal on his face, right? The kid had a lot more hair than... I guess the doctor was expecting. So by the time he got out of surgery, he basically had an entirely hair-covered left hand from the hair that was transplanted from his chest to his hand. Wait, so it wasn't that the doctor transplanted unhairy skin. That grew. That grew. He transplanted hairs onto the hand? So I thought this too because when we learned it, it was like, well, it was, it was skin that would grow hair in another place, so it made sense that, like, 
then eventually, yeah, it would grow hair on his hand, too. I didn't realize that it already had hair. To some degree, that is correct, because that's what the cells that were transplanted would do. Yeah. There was hair on this poor kid's hand. Like, from the start. Like, he just took his hairy skin from his chest. This, there was a little bit more digging that I had to do to make sure that this was correct, but yeah. the way it was inferred yeah. was that there was hair... And I look, I don't know how much I wasn't there. I don't know how much hair was on his hand. I can't say if it was like I said, it was completely hair covered. I don't know if that's exactly true, but um, basically instantly disappointed with the surgery. Wow. And brought suit pretty quickly after the, the transplant occurred. OK, now we know like he's he's got a, an issue here. It still begs the question, though, what can he recover? Yeah. Why is that something that? would allow him to get more money for whatever reason. Okay. And how do you value how the you difference value between hand? a hairy hand and a normal hand? I don't think people realize that body parts as they are already have value to them. Oh, I know. We talked about this in um, my employment law class because we went through workers' compensation mm-hmm. and uh, all of the you know ancillary issues to that. Yep. And there's effectively a chart state to state yep. that va- puts a value on someone's body part no matter what it is like so like an eye would probably get you more than your forefinger which would get you less than your entire left leg or something like that one of my bosses at my first internship used to do insurance work and so she had memorized what every part of your body costs yeah it's 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 a morbid in the sense that someone sat down or a group of people sat down and put a value to each body part it's also definitely ableist yeah. because people with disabilities can totally live a normal life with or without certain body parts. No yeah. problem. We talked about that already. I inferred it heavily in my first case. Yeah. But it's something that people, a lot of people don't know. Secondarily here, mm-hmm. what's the difference between a hairy hand and a normal hand? And yeah. is there a difference in value? Turns out not really. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, the court wasn't able to treat this as like a torts question necessarily. Um, so there wasn't like a medical malpractice issue in play here. There wasn't traceable direct damages based on uh, the botched surgery. Instead, court treated it as a breach of contract. Right. I mean, they kind of have to, I guess, in this case. Well, it's it's definitely a services issue, right? Yeah. Instead of just damaged goods yeah. from one person to another. Yes. So... The way that the court goes about deciding they're going to apply a contractual remedy here, which is effectively damages are meant to put the plaintiff in as good a position as they would be had there not been a breach of the contract. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So effectively, the value of what was expected mm-hmm. versus the value of what was eventually given. Right. So the value of a 100% very good hand versus, versus the hairy, the hairy one that he got. The court doesn't necessarily go into the specific numbers in this case. They refuse to put a number on what a hairy hand is worth, <laughs> right? They they sure. were like, that's a question either for the jury or for somebody else entirely. We're not going to worry about that. Instead, all we're going to do is just tell you the remedy that should be applied, analogous to a breach of contract case, mm-hmm. the differences that we spoke about. And then all, <laughs> for whatever reason, they left us with a few caveats of what the jury could not consider in this case. And I think oh. this is probably the funniest part. So all right, then. you can consider the difference between a hairy hand and a normal hand. Totally fine. You can't consider pain and suffering in this case. But why? Apparently, according to the court, pain and suffering are inherent to surgery on a hand. 
And because the kid went in expecting surgery on a hand, all the pain and suffering that he's experiencing is not different or special to the breach itself. It's inherent to the actual surgery. But what if he was arguing like pain and suffering for bullying because he's got a hairy hand? We're talking 1929 here. I don't think they were about bullies. They were not as socially conscious as we are. And of all the things in this case, the court would put its foot down the hardest on these few things. So, (laughs) yeah, that's what they believe. They also said that because Hawkins was willing to pay for the surgery, the pain itself, that becomes a legal detriment. The pain that resulted from this was not only inherent to the surgery, it was what Hawkins signed up for. He signed up for the pain by asking for this surgery. So all the pain that comes from it can't be considered in accordance with everything else because he knew what he was getting into. And not only that, he chose to get into it. This sounds a little victim blamey to me. Huge victim blamey. I haven't even gotten to the weirdest part yet. Let me do the last caveat first and then I'll, I'll break this whole thing open. Your mind will flip. Um, The court also said you can't consider whether or not the doctor uh, may have made the condition of the hand worse. So we talked earlier on about how you might have limited mobility in a scar tissue hand Mm -hmm. effectively. The court said you can't consider what the hand is now because it would be effectively considering a negative. So are they saying he gets no damages then? He's Like it's nominal because... He breached the contract, but his hand is not worse off. Like the court said, it's not worse off because your hand was fucked before. Remember that the the amount of damages that can be recovered here is the difference in what was expected and what was given. Right. So the amount of damages would be from a normal hand to the hand that he had now, not from what he had now to what he had then is what they're saying. But it's seeming like what they're saying in these caveats, though, is that you can't consider the hairy hand. Basically saying all of the, the claims that you could potentially bring in a, a tort suit for malpractice or emotional harm or something like that mm-hmm. are completely outside the scope of this case. Okay. That you can only do breach of contract damages, which is the difference between the expected product and the delivered product. Okay. So the difference between the delivered product and what you had originally mm-hmm. doesn't matter. That makes complete Ancillary sense. Ancillary damages, emotional damages... Uh, things you might sustain from being bullied or from being ostracized doesn't matter none of that matters this is a contracts case exactly right perfect okay the final bit that i think is interesting and i'll leave people on this the court mentioned this but refused to go into it like to the point of saying at that very end of their case that they weren't going to talk about this there was evidence in this case that mcgee consistently pestered the father over and over again for years to perform reconstructive surgery on this kid's hand because he wanted to, quote, experiment with skin grafting. No way. Yeah, and I think that's something that goes, like, untaught a lot in, in law school because it yeah. do, it doesn't it's not a concept that we need to know about. It's just an interesting bit. Yeah. But it's probably, to me, the most interesting bit of the case. Yep. Um, if it were a criminal case, for example, there's your motive. Yeah. Right? If it were a tort case... There's your causation right there. Right? Why didn't... I mean, you probably don't know the answer to this because it's the 1920s and they did everything weird, but why didn't they sue him for medical malpractice? They could have gotten a whole world of damages that aren't available in contract. So without going into too much detail, because I took health law this past semester, this is literally the only reason I know this because otherwise I would know nothing about 
um, um, any sort of malpractice law or anything like that. Yeah, obviously me either. Um, the protections that exist now, as limited as they are, have been very, very recent updates. There wasn't a lot of causes of action. So I can only imagine that they had no actual cause of action under the state of New Hampshire's law. So they just did the best they could. Yeah, so they had to fit it into contract. And the way it was written, it almost felt like they didn't even bring a contract law claim. They just brought a complaint to the court and they sort of fit it into a, as right. the, the best shaped hole that they could figure out. Right. Which, I mean, it does fit in contract to me, like, pretty clearly. The breach clearly does. The problem yeah. is that the way the remedies were applied right. basically completely puts them out of recovering at all. Right. Which is what I just got hung up on because I yeah. completely forgot that we're in contracts and not in tort. And I, I just want to make it clear to everybody who's actually listening here. Don't get caught up on the differentiation between like the areas of law, right? Mm -hmm. We say tort, we say contract, we say health law, we say criminal law, we say criminal procedure, whatever it is. Just think about the cause of action in this case and then what that best fits into. Here, tort aside, contract aside, it was clear that McGee violated a promise that he made mm -hmm. and that some type of damages occurred. So the court had to do the best it could in that scenario. I don't want to give the court any extra credit than it deserves, but <laughs> that's what happened here. So That's the hairy hand. Hairy hand. How many times can we say hairy hand? So that was our second episode. Uh, I hope our cases weren't too much of a bummer for everybody. Uh, unfortunately, that's the you know realistic side of law. Still weird and wacky and I think worth talking about um, even as sad as things can be or as strange as things can be. I tried to fix my audio this time around. I know last time I was a little quieter than Tess was for the most part. Um, I'm still getting the trick of editing. I'm still getting the trick of recording as best I can. So hopefully this came out good. If anyone has feedback, they can totally do that. And Tess is going to tell you where you can do that. Yeah, so if you have um, comments, feedback, gentle criticism... Uh, or case suggestions or anything legal that you'd like us to talk about, um, you can reach us on social media. It's at Disorder in the Court Pod on Instagram. It's at Disorder Pod on Twitter. And you can also email us at Disorder in the Court Pod at gmail.com. Any of those, I'll get your messages and I'll share them with Trev. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Woo! This week, I used a lot of sources, um, and you can find them in the episode description or on either of our social media pages. I will link to them so you can see them. Please give them a read.